In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Thomas Aquinas was a busy guy, writing all he did before dying, still shy of turning 50. So I found it kind of touching when I discovered he had taken the time to respond to a set of four very silly questions about Christmas posed by a certain brother, Jared of Byzantinum. I don't know what kind of monkish shenanigans were going on in Byzantinum, that's Besançon in present-day France, but for some reason, Jared thought he needed to write Aquinas and inquire first whether the star which appeared to the Magi had the shape of a cross, second, whether it had the shape of a man, third, whether it had the shape of a crucifix, and fourth, I kid you not, whether the little hands of the newborn baby Jesus created the stars. Thomas is clearly a bit grumpy about being bothered with this stuff. He replies, it isn't fitting for a preacher of the truth to digress into unknown fables, and trifling things of this sort shouldn't be preached to the people when there are so many other things to be preached that are more certainly true. Well, I'm usually all about taking St. Thomas's advice on such things, but with apologies to him and to you, let me dwell for just a moment on the baby Jesus and the stars above. We can leave his little hands out of it. <laughs> But consider, if you will, that newborn infant lying there in the manger. That person is God the Son, the eternal, almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. If he lies there and, seeing the stars, thinks, I made those, then he's right. So I ask you, is that a thought? that might have crossed the little Lord Jesus's mind. How about this one? I'm wet. I could use a change of swaddling clothes. Perhaps some crying I should make. But my poor mother must be exhausted. I'll keep the night silent a little longer and let her rest. Pretty implausible, I'm guessing we can agree. Here's why I bring it up though. Let's assume the baby Jesus wasn't lying there thinking about how he made the stars or thinking much of anything at all. I'd assume that the same is true during the next few episodes of Luke's gospel when he's circumcised and presented to Anna and Simeon in the temple. By the time of our gospel reading for today, though, Jesus is evidently not just thinking the thoughts of an ordinary 12-year-old boy. St. Luke was always keen on showing that Jesus's human parents complied in every way with Jewish law. And it may be for that reason that Luke includes this vignette of Jesus heading with his folks to the temple for Passover, perhaps to receive instruction there the year before he'd come of age at 13. His parents lose him for three days only to find him questioning and hearing from the teachers of the law. 
I'm sure any parents here can sympathize with Mary's anguished cry, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. To which Jesus replies roughly, no, mom, my father knows exactly where I am and I'm exactly where he wants me to be in his house, or as some translations have it, about my father's business. A gentle correction, but a correction nonetheless. We're told his parents didn't understand his words. This might seem a bit odd given the miraculous way Mary and Joseph arrived at their boy Jesus in the first place, but it's been 12 years I guess Gabriel's announcements, the son of the most high, of his reign there will be no end, and so forth, just weren't in the forefront of Mary's mind. So she treasures these things up in her heart to ponder later. But what was going on in Jesus's mind during the events of our story? He knows the temple is his father's house indicating an awareness that he is God the Son. He amazes the teachers with his understanding and his answers, showing that he is indeed the Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as St. Paul writes in Colossians. On the other hand, we can't ignore the last verses of the story either, which tell us that Jesus went home to Nazareth with, with his parents and was submissive to them. Also, that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The parallel between that last bit and the description of the boy Samuel in our Old Testament reading is, is pretty obvious. Luke is insisting that Jesus is fully human human enough to grow and to obey. Yet he isn't merely human either. He is becoming conscious, indeed, of his own divinity. Philosophically minded theologians have long puzzled about how to explain the situation with Christ's consciousness. What might it be like for one person to possess both the divine mind and the growing, inquiring mind of a 12-year-old boy. The best we can do is propose models or analogies. So one philosopher suggests it might be like one of those weird, lucid dreams in which you're a character participating in the dream, yet are also aware through an overarching layer of consciousness that you are, in fact, dreaming. The overarching consciousness includes the dream consciousness, but not vice versa, just as Christ's human consciousness is included in his overall consciousness, but isn't limited to it. Another philosopher brings up Robert Heinlein's science fiction novel, The Puppet Masters, in which parasitic aliens have arrived and attached themselves to humans. The aliens can operate either through the consciousnesses of their human hosts or through their own minds. Again, while the aliens have access to the human consciousness, 
the humans don't have access to the alien minds. A third analogy, <laughs> a bit more mundane, <laughs> that I find especially useful is the experience of operating in a foreign language. My family and I will head shortly to Mexico for some months to lead a study abroad program. And while my wife and I speak Spanish, we're by no means fluent. And the amount of our overall personality and experience that we're able to express in Spanish is pretty limited. Since there's such a tight connection, furthermore, between one's language and one's mind or consciousness overall, entering a new linguistic and cultural context is one sort of model for thinking about the sort of kenosis or emptying of himself that Christ experienced when he became incarnate. Of course, that too is just a model. And leaning too hard on any model veers us into the sort of digressions into unknown fables that Thomas warns us against. We can't know exactly how the components of Christ's consciousness are unified. But neither should the notion of a divided consciousness seem very foreign to any of us readers of St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. The chapter from which we read today begins with Paul speaking about putting off what is earthly in us, the old self with its vices and vicious practices. As Paul himself knew well, though, it is one thing to want not to want to engage in the vicious practices he mentions, but another thing entirely to lack the associated desires altogether. As philosophers sometimes say, we can have higher order desires to put off the old self, while the lower order desires of the old self remain very much present. In our passage today, Paul shifts from putting off to putting on. Putting on what? Well, we get a long list, including virtues such as compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and gratitude, along with corresponding virtuous practices such as bearing with, forgiving, teaching, and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns, giving thanks to God, and so on. This is doubtless all very good counsel, but I hope I might be forgiven for finding it a bit daunting too. How does one go about reintegrating one's fractured self around the virtues and activities Paul mentions instead of the vicious behaviors of the old self? Well, the proper Pauline and Christian thing to say is surely that one doesn't for oneself, but rather God extends us grace to have faith that Christ became incarnate in order to reintegrate humanity for us. And our passage from Colossians testifies to this focus squarely on Christ. 
Above all the other virtues and practices that Paul mentions, he says, put on love, agape, which binds everything together in perfect unity. Aquinas' Latin word for agape was caritas, and he thinks of it as friendship with God. He calls it the form of the virtues in the sense that there can be no other true virtue without it. Of course, our love extends from God to neighbor as well, but Thomas says, the aspect under which our neighbor is to be loved is God, since what we ought to love in our neighbor is that he may be in God. So when Paul says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity, I think his idea is partly that our love for Christ is at the root of all the vice elimination and virtue acquisition that goes along with reintegrating our personalities. He certainly seems to hammer this point home, too, encouraging us in the verses that follow to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and indeed do everything we do in the name of Christ. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ. This being all souls, I shouldn't omit to gesture at the symbols of the passion and atoning work on the cross as a good reason for all this Christ focus. But right now, it is Christmas, and it seems fitting in this season to linger on the way God's love for the world brought about the perfect union of divinity and humanity in the incarnation itself. In closing, then, let me return to the example Christ set in emptying himself such that he submitted to his earthly father and mother and increased in wisdom and stature. Among the virtues Paul urges the Colossians to put on is humility. Christ shows us what this looks like. We can appreciate this all the more by comparing the sole account of Jesus' boyhood in our Gospels, today's story from Luke, with the many bizarre stories in the so-called Gnostic scriptures, like the infancy gospel of St. Thomas. There, we find a very different account of Jesus interacting with a teacher of the law. I quote, a teacher named Zacchaeus overheard what Jesus was saying to Joseph and marveled, saying to himself, as just a child, he utters these things. And taking Joseph aside, Zacchaeus said to him, you have a wise child. He has a good mind, but give him to me that he may learn letters. I will teach him all knowledge so that he will not be rebellious. Replying, Joseph said to him, nobody except God can subordinate this child. And as Jesus heard Joseph saying this, he laughed and said to Zacchaeus, Really, teacher, what my father has said to you is true. 
I am the Lord of this people, and am here in your presence, and have been born among you, and am with you. I know where you are from, and how many years there will be in your lives. I'm telling you the truth, teacher, when you were born, I existed. And if you want to be a perfect teacher, listen to me, and I will teach you wisdom which nobody knows except me and the one who sent me to you. The Jews who were present and heard Jesus were amazed and said, What a strange and remarkable event. The child is only five years old, and already he says such things. For we never heard anyone who speaks words like this child does. And the child leapt forward toward them and said, You are amazed by little things and have minuscule minds. Well, the child isn't necessarily wrong in what he says about his listeners or indeed about us. Nor does his evident lack of humility in the story stem from inflated or inaccurate views about himself. He is the Lord of all peoples, does know the number of years there will be in our lives, and did exist when we were born. Christ's humility is, rather, evident in the way he submits and grows, not for his own sake, but for ours. Christ need not have operated like a clumsy speaker of a foreign language, except for the sake of teaching us in our native tongue for the sake of binding divinity and humanity together, to bind us in love to himself. And when we respond in love with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, Christ's word dwelling richly in us and doing everything we do in Christ's name, the forefront of reintegrating our fractured selves by putting on humility, compassion, kindness, and all the rest must consist in breaking down walls that divide us from one another, and especially those operating like foreigners in our context. The verse we read, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, can refer, as far as I can tell, to binding together all the virtues in a human individual. The notion of agape, or caritas, as the form of the virtues that I referred to above. It can also refer, however, to Paul's listeners, not as individuals, but collectively binding together all the Colossians in perfect harmony, or all of us. And indeed, the context of the verse speaks more to this latter idea. The verse preceding the passage we read today says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all, and is in all. Immediately after what we read today follow specific instructions about how the various members of the church, 
Husbands, wives, parents, children are to relate to one another. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Paul says in verse 15 of our passage today, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Let us constantly consider how Christ calls us to unity as a body, and especially to follow his example by drawing to him those in our context who have, like him, emptied themselves of the ability to express the fullness of their personhood. The next events Luke narrates of Jesus' life are his baptism, temptation in the desert, and beginning of his ministry. It is notable that after the apparently crushing end to Jesus' ministry with the cross, Luke gives us another story about two disciples who are distressed because for three days now, they think they have lost Jesus. There, too, Jesus gently corrects them, explaining why everything in the scriptures concerning himself had to take place. Our passage today points us towards these events on the horizon. But let us attend while it is Christmas to the way the Son of God, who made the stars, submitted himself and increased in wisdom, that through his love we might be bound together in perfect harmony. Amen.